great city of Baghdad, the showplace capital of the most powerful empire in the world, the mighty Khalif Harun al-Rashid established Beit al-Hikmah, the house of wisdom. This institution of learning would go on under his successors to be the center of an unmatched movement of research, scholarship, and discovery. For some 500 years, it was the engine of mathematics, chemistry, physics, astronomy, optics, and philosophy, which led directly to the European Renaissance. But it's one thing to tick off a laundry list of school science subjects, quite another to get a handle on what Arabic science actually contributed. Now, depending on whose version of history you listen to, the Arabs either invented nothing or everything. So today, inshallah, we're going to try to come to real terms with the Arabic-Islamic contributions to science in the early days of Beit al-Hikmah. So stay tuned. If you're somewhat confused about the Arabic contributions to science, well, don't feel too bad. There is a lot of confusing information out there. And the two popular narratives tend to fall to the extremes. First, there's the story that I learned back in school, which, to be fair, was a long time ago, that basically left out the Arab world entirely. The Greeks and Romans were geniuses. The barbarians came along and destroyed everything. Europe was in the Dark Ages, and then, quote, rediscovered science and philosophy, and thus the Renaissance was born. Then a narrative I learned later on said that the Arabs invented modern science and gave us the Renaissance. Well, as you would guess, neither of these is exactly true. And the problem is that both views separate the Arab world from the West. And as you've gathered from this series of podcasts, we are definitely taking the view, which I think is quite true, that the Arab world is part of the West, part of the greater Mediterranean Western civilization. If we look at this as a whole, as one great Mediterranean civilization, then a logical narrative ties together the Romans, the Arabs, and the Renaissance. But before we do that, before we look at this subject, we kind of have to get away from our common view of science and discovery. Now, we all love a good story, and we especially love a hero. And so the idea that some great person came out of nowhere, invented something from scratch, and changed all our lives, it's very pleasing, right? If it were not for Thomas Edison, we'd all be sitting in the dark right now. If Christopher Columbus hadn't come along, we would have no idea that the Americas exist. But in real science, or in real history for that matter, this is hardly ever true. There's almost always a gradual progression, an accumulation and refinement of knowledge. Now, people do make very important contributions, but it's not like they come out of nowhere or have no peers. When someone discovers a cure for cancer, they will get a lot of credit, and deservedly so. But that person is going to be building on decades of research by hundreds of scientists and billions of dollars in investment. And this is really the story of Arab science. 
there are a lot of great names out there. We're going to mention some of them today, and they do deserve a lot of credit. They certainly deserve to be as, as heralded as the scientists of the Greeks or the Europeans. But no one person really invented physics or algebra or chemistry as much as you might like to blame them when you're in high school. Those people discovered important principles, and maybe a few of them discovered something that revolutionized these subjects. And so maybe at some arbitrary point, we can say that a transition from, let's say, ancient alchemy to modern chemistry occurred with one of these great discoveries. But when we really dial in and look at the specifics, we see that it's not just one person inventing chemistry, but a lot of discoveries, a lot of ideas, innovations being piled one on top of another until we get to where we are today. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So what you're seeing in many of the books that gloss over this period is an attempt to summarize. And of course, they have to. So we say Al-Khwarizmi invented algebra, Ibn Haytham invented optics, and so on. But the reality is that hundreds of scientists in large institutions were making advances in those disciplines, and most of their names are lost to us. The key point, though, is for about five centuries, those scientists were working mostly in Arabic. They were sponsored by Islamic empires, even if many of them were not Muslim themselves. And the rest of the world was following their lead, was translating their discoveries, was teaching what they had invented. And that, I think, is our real story here today. In an earlier episode, we discussed the, quote, translation movement that ran for about the first two centuries of the Abbasid Caliphate, and that's roughly 750 to 950 AD. And as we said back then, this was not pure translation for translation's sake, but essentially they were translating the great works of the Greeks and to a much lesser extent the Hindus as the basis for further research in order to to use it for applications. But by 950, really, most of the translation was done, and the Arabic scholars were from that point on building upon each other. They were commenting on previous Arabic scholars. But nevertheless, even during those early years, 750, 850, 950, great advances were being made during this so-called translation period. One of the sciences that we can truly call Arabic is chemistry. And in this section, by the way, I am very much indebted to the work of the great scientist and historian of science, Dr. Jim El-Khalili, who I highly recommend to you if you haven't read any of his work. Uh, Dr. El-Khalili has written several books, and he's done a lot of documentaries for the BBC. You can find them all over YouTube. Uh, the easiest way to explain, if you haven't seen him, uh, Dr. El-Khalili is like you know the, the cool teacher from high school. He's the one who could take algebra and make it sound exciting. I mean, he's that kind of guy, and he makes these things very accessible. Uh, he approaches these from the point of view of a science, 
Uh, he understands the, the scientific intricacies. He understands all the complex principles, but he can take them and make it sound very accessible in a very common sense way. So if you want to do any further reading on this subject, I highly recommend uh, Dr. Jim El Khalili to you. And uh, needless to say, he is a major source of everything we're going to talk about here today. Okay, well, today we separate the science of chemistry from the pseudoscience of alchemy, which typically refers to quack ideas about turning common metals into gold. It's kind of like the distinction between astronomy and astrology. But these distinctions, we should realize, are later developments of what worked and what didn't. Like any kind of scientist, they, they started out with questions. You know, why does this thing happen? Is it possible? Can you do this? Can you do that? And so they found out through experimentation, uh, some things actually could work. Some things didn't work. And so what we end up with today as the alchemy, the, the quack ideas that only work in fairy tales, those are the things that didn't pan out. And the chemistry is the stuff that did. And so uh, it's important to realize that even when we talk about these people working on some pretty weird-sounding ideas. It's not that they were crazy. It's that's how you discover things. And if we think about it, some of these scientific principles that we know today, they probably sounded crazy to the first uh, people who heard them. Anyway, both of these words come from the same Arabic term. Alchemy it comes from the Arabic word alchemia. And you're typically going to find words that begin with al- usually are coming from Arabic, and there's a lot of scientific words that come from this, algebra, algorithm, alchemia, and so forth. Now, the Arabs didn't invent this. The Greeks, the Persians, the Chinese, they were all very interested in classifying the nature of materials. I mean, what is the world made of? And so we get from the Persians, there was a famous four elements of fire, earth, air, and water, and if nothing else, we have them to thank for the Avatar animated series, right? Uh, the Fire Nation, those evil guys. But there were many different variations on this. The Hindus, for example, they had a fifth. They, they felt that space was a fifth element. So what the Arabic scientists really added to this was experimentation. Now, the earlier classifications were based on observable qualities. I mean, anyone can look at fire and water and tell how they're different. And uh, Aristotle famously, he divided things into, into wet, dry, solid, based on what you could observe about them. Well, that made a lot of sense. What the Arabs really did was start to break down these substances and see how they combined. And this is going to sound very familiar, probably maybe very unpleasant to you from college chemistry or high school chemistry. This is the kind of thing you did in the lab. You're probably remembering the lab partner you got stuck with. But things we do today, distillation, evaporation, sublimation, all these different ways of breaking down substances to study them, Many of these came from the Arabs at this time. What they were trying to get at was what was the internal structure of these substances? What were they made of? Okay, yeah, fire was hot and it burned, water was wet, but why? What was it about them? And so, for example, we get the, the very famous one you learn in chemistry, the division of acids and alkalis, for example. And you will notice alkali, that word, again, it sounds like another Arabic word, and it is. It comes from the word for ashes, alkali, 
which is how they isolated the earliest alkalis or bases uh, from, from the ashes of things that were burned. So what's important here to us, unless you're a chemist, these uh, discoveries, of course, will be of interest to you. But in a more general sense, what we see here that's going to be very important throughout this entire story is the scientific method as we know it today. And I think it's so important to stress that, you know, we're talking about an Islamic empire, uh, a state that is based upon religion, yes, but the importance they put on the scientific method. And as we're going to see, several of the great Muslim scientists come out specifically and say, this is the only way to determine things. Faith is one thing, but you have to be able to test it and prove it by experimentation. And that's really the basis of the scientific method that is going to lead to the scientific revolution in Europe. And it is different from what the, the earlier Greeks practiced. Uh, they practiced more based on observation. Okay, so one of the pioneers of chemistry was a man named Jabir ibn Hayyan, and he lived around the turn of the 9th century. So this would put him in the first century of the Abbasid period. Now this man is said to have written some 3,000 works on a vast range of subjects. And particularly, he covered a wide variety of topics in chemistry. And you would think in 3,000 books you could cover a whole lot of things. Now of course, historians today debate whether he actually wrote all of these. I mean, the sheer volume suggests that he, he didn't write them. Uh, the only people who can write 3,000 books are like trashy romance books. But I think they're missing the point here. This is not the modern academic world with copyrights and plagiarism. Uh, that's a later development. Like any well-sponsored scholar in the Abbasid world, he would have a whole team under him, you know, maybe a whole lab that he supervised, and they would be publishing their works in the name of Jabber, and having your work published under the name of a famous scientist would have given it added credibility. So the, whether some lab assistant actually did the work and wrote down the results or not, which is probably likely, is not really what's important here. Now these works would be translated into Latin and become hugely influential in the development of science in Europe. And this is a pattern we're going to see. So at first we're seeing the translation from Greek into Arabic. Well, what's going to happen throughout the rest of the Middle Ages is a translation movement from Arabic, mostly into Latin, uh, to go into Europe. And again, it was just accepted. The, the Arabs had the good stuff. They had the good science. And so uh, Europeans, in many cases monks, were translating this stuff. And that's something that's kind of lost on us today. So what we really see in this character of Jabber, though, is typical of Islamic science. And I like to point him out just because of what he represents. Now, he makes extensive references to the classical scholars, the Greeks and the Persians, but he also rebuts them. Uh, he 
shows that he doesn't agree with everything they say. And so he's drawing, of course, on the translation movement, these works that have been translated from Greek and Persian, but he's putting his own interpretation, saying, hey, this doesn't make sense, and he's going into the lab and testing it and saying, okay, yeah, Aristotle was right, or no, he wasn't. But the idea was, even though the the classical scholars said this, and we translated it, we still have to see it for ourselves. Nobody gets a free pass. And this is uh, meant that many of the theories of Aristotle and Plato would be revised. I mean, we remember Aristotle is a great father of sciences, but the fact is much of what he said is scientifically wrong. Okay, now that is really significant when we look at our image of the Middle Ages. In the, in the West, we tend to see the Middle Ages as a period of slavish acceptance to whatever the old book said. And typically in Europe, uh, that's what they would do, is if you had a question, well, what did the ancients say about this? What did Aristotle say about this? Well, that's the answer. And then suddenly the Renaissance bursts out of nowhere with geniuses like da Vinci who question everything. Well, it's clear that what we see here... Uh, in the beginning period, coming from the Arabs, gives us the seed of the age of reason, the enlightenment, the scientific method. They're already doing this. During what is really the dark ages in Europe, they are questioning all of the great conclusions of the great masters. Some of them they're, they're saying are correct. Others they're having difference with. But the idea is just because this stuff was said by Aristotle we have to check it out. We have to put it to our most up-to-date scientific tests and see if it really turns out to be true. On a bigger scale, what we see here is that the Islamic civilization isn't afraid of seeking knowledge from any source and from challenging beliefs. You just see a real confidence. But then they're testing the nature of the world around them. Nothing is off limits. So an idea can be coming from Hindus who believe in multiple gods. It can be coming from pagan Greeks. And we're not afraid to take that on. And if it makes sense, we accept it. But everything we're putting to the test. And this is 180 degrees out from the picture we have of Christian Europe at the time. And again, nothing in the nature of the religion itself accounts from the difference. Please don't cite to me one of the 600,000 reported hadiths of the prophet that says to go seek knowledge in China and say that's the reason. Okay, we've already talked about the hadith and how 1% of them are accepted. The fact that there is a hadith that talks about seeking knowledge is not the reason that the Islamic empire so embraced science and then turned away from it centuries later. The simple fact here is that we are talking about an empire that is on top of its game, an empire that from the very beginning, from the earliest days of Islam, and certainly from the day when the Islamic calendar starts, the year of the Hijra, is a political, military, uh, economic power, as well as being a religious power, and for 400 years has an unbroken streak of victories. I mean, just really conquers and absorbs everybody in front of them. And in the process, uh, absorbs the most advanced 
civilizations of the day, the Persians, much of the Byzantine Empire uh, ab absorbs their science and their scientists. And at this point, they are just seeing this Dar al-Islam. Remember, that's how the world is seen. It's not seen as the Abbasid Caliphate. It's seen as the realm of Islam, which is constantly expanding against the world of ignorance. And there's just this confidence that, hey, you know, we are it. We are the power. We're on top of the world. And in that sense, they don't really have a reason to fear that, hey, we better not look at these ideas from outside or look at these ideas from the Greeks because they might challenge our beliefs. The, the idea is that they have a confidence and nothing has happened in history to shake their confidence. And again, it's something I've said over and over again, and I'm going to continue to repeat because I think it's one of the most important points here, is that it's a very different history from what we have in Christianity. Christianity begins as a persecuted mo uh, movement and only three centuries later begins to have some political power, but by that time its doctrine has already been solidified. And through much of Christian history throughout the Middle Ages, there is this competition, this direct conflict between the political powers and the religious powers. We don't have that in Islam. In Islam, we have one guy who is the Khalif, and he's in charge of everything. He's the successor to the prophet, who is the messenger of God. He's the religious leader. He's the political leader. He's the sponsor of science and innovation. And yes, he has people under him. He do Islamic law, who do hadith, that do science. But the idea that all of this is consolidated, and I think this is why we have such a confidence in approaching science. So if this sounds like a really great story... So far, we're talking about how the Muslim scientists led the way in rational scientific work. There is another side as well. This search for knowledge led to a lot of fairly crazy ideas. Basically, if you're willing to test any idea, then you're going to test a lot of ideas that turn out to be pretty strange. For example, Jabber, who we talked about as being the great scientist, uh, he was big into alchemy, and he tested out some pretty bizarre theories. In fact, the word gibberish in English comes from Jabber's name. So that just gives you an idea of how some of his theories were received. And one of his main interests, if it was not his biggest interest, was in what we call taqueen. And taqueen essentially means bringing things to life. And yes, that does sound a lot like Frankenstein. And that's kind of what he was trying to do. So we might laugh at him now, but some of those experiments brought about some real discoveries along with a lot of failed ones. So uh, the point is today, a lot of critics bring up these strange ideas that the Muslim thinkers had to discredit them. But you have to look at it in the context of the time. Until they tried, they didn't know what was going to be proven or not. So I think the idea of someone claiming that, say, the stars influenced human health, well, we would say that's superstition. But at the time, that sounds about as reasonable as saying that billions of invisible little creatures called germs can pass through the air and infest a human body, which today we know is true.
Interestingly, one of the few areas in which the Arabs actually do get credit in the West is one where their contribution is really less clear-cut, and that we're talking about is number systems. Of course, we know that the numbers we use today are called Arabic numerals. These, as you may know, however, are not the numbers that are used in most of the Arab world. What they use are sometimes referred to as Hindi numerals, so we can see it gets a little bit confusing. In any case, the Arabs usually do get credit for introducing the decimal system in the all-important mathematical concept of zero as a placeholder, which came from India. And this is rightly contrasted with the amazingly cumbersome system of Roman numerals, which are basically good for numbering the Rocky movies, and that's about it. And as you've ever tried to do math with Roman numerals, you know it, it's pretty close to impossible. So the great philosopher Al-Kindi, whom we discussed earlier in the episode about the translation movement, and most importantly, Al-Khwarizmi, founder of algebra, were two of the leading figures who introduced this concept of zero to the Muslim world, and then it went on to Europe, and we are told just revolutionized uh, the way we do math even today. The reality is a bit more complicated, and this is where, again, we rely on the expertise of a scientist, a trained person like uh, Dr. Jim El-Khalili, who shows that in reality, zero is used for many different things in mathematics and in algebra, and that the invention of these functions, if you will, actually took place over a very long time. So some of the functions that we associate with zero, that is using a symbol as a placeholder, you know, to make a difference between one, zero, one, 101, and one, one being 11. This has been traced back as far as the Babylonians, but they didn't have an actual concept of zero being a number that represented something. Meanwhile, similar systems, the use of placeholders, developed independently in China and Central America. But even after the concept of the zero came from India to Baghdad, the idea wasn't fully developed. In fact, some of the functions that we use the zero for were not developed until the Renaissance. So again, the transmission and development of science is a much more complicated process. But without a doubt, the Arabs were very instrumental in transmitting some of the latest developments from India all the way to Europe. So we have this popular story that divides math or number systems into the old Roman-style numerals, which were cumbersome, and the Arabic style, which uses a place system, like one place for the ones, the next place for the tens, and so on, which is much more useful. But the fact is that place value systems have been in use even before the Romans, and there were different ones. Some place value systems based on a base of 20, some on a base of 12, and some on a base of 60 were already in use as far back as the Babylonians. And this is why so many important numbers and values in our world today have multiples of these numbers, like why there are so many important things that are multiples of 60, like 60 minutes in an hour and 360 degrees in a circle. Furthermore, we know that the Greeks, like Pythagoras and Euclid, were doing complex calculations even before the Romans. On the other hand, even after the introduction of Arabic numerals, 
the Roman-style system, that is using letters to represent different quantities, was still being used by many people, non-mathematicians, up until the 17th century. So we've really muddied the waters here. What is the bottom line? The gist here is that the Arabs inherited, added to, and further developed a working number system that enabled them to do advanced mathematics. What they did in algebra, for example, was groundbreaking. Scientists in both the Muslim world and in Europe adopted this system. In Europe, scientists faced persecution for doing what was considered foreign magic, using what were called these, these Arab devil numbers. In fact, a famous incident is the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who, by the way, could read Arabic and was a great consumer of Arabic science and writing, was excommunicated by the Pope for his love of Arab science, um, among other things that he did that challenged the authority of the papacy. So we get an idea here that uh, this was being adopted into Europe and was appreciated in Europe even in the Middle Ages. And that leads us, of course, to the biggie, the most famous uh, science associated with the Arabs, and that is algebra. If you ask most people to name one science that comes from the Arabs, that's probably the one they can think of because it has an obviously Arabic name. Al-Jabr comes from the title of uh, the foundational text written by Al-Khwarizmi, and interestingly enough, the the word Al-Jabr is just one part of a very long title. And what it actually means is correction. And in math, it refers to that step of moving a negative number from one side of an equation to the other, making it positive. That's algebra. And that was just one of the many things in this very long title. But it shows just how important naming is. That became the short title for this book. And that spread throughout Europe. And so the word algebra comes to represent the entire system, even though it comes from a really a really small and arbitrarily selected part of this. Anyway, the key figure in algebra is definitely Al-Khwarizmi, and he's another person who was from Uzbekistan today. He was likely a Zoroastrian, and he may or may not have converted to Islam. We don't really know, and the reason is because in his writings, he uses all the normal courtesies. He says, in the name of God, when he writes. But that was just so much part of the culture. We don't know if that he really was Muslim or not. The fact was, a Zoroastrian from the outer reaches of Persia could move to Baghdad and could flourish in this Islamic empire. He flourished about 100 years after the foundation of Baghdad, around 850s when he died. And, of course, he wrote in Arabic, but he is, he's claimed by Uzbekistan, he's claimed by Iran today. So I had always learned that Al-Khwarizmi invented algebra. But again, when you look very uh, closely, and again here I highly recommend Dr. Al-Khalili's work on this, you see that the reality is more complicated. So the fact is, using symbols to represent unknown quantities and solving for those symbols existed long before Al-Khwarizmi. 
We know this was done even by the, the ancient Babylonians. And by, just by the way, one reason we know so much about the Babylonians is that they wrote on clay tablets rather than papyrus. And of course, clay will survive a disaster much better than paper, and even fire just bakes clay into a harder, more permanent form. And so this is why we have so many records from the Babylonians. So they, we know they were doing something which we would consider similar to algebra. Algebra got a huge boost under the Greeks. But on the other side, even what Al-Khwarizmi did was not fully formed algebra as you learn to enjoy it in high school. Uh, for one thing, very interestingly, he wrote in his books in prose rather than symbols. Now that probably sounds very strange uh, when you think about an algebra book being written that way, and it probably uh, makes it sound like a book you really don't want to run out and read. That's one point. He also dealt with squares of numbers, when we say like 2 squared is 4 and so on. And he did a lot of uh, equations that involve squares. It's hard to believe he never dealt with higher powers, so he never dealt with anything to the third, to the fourth, and so on. We just assume today if you can raise something to the second power, you could go as far as you like. But here again, this was all for practical purposes. So for the equations he was doing, he didn't have a need to wonder what happens if you multiply something times itself three times and so on. But again, when we're talking about the sort of symbolic algebra that we know today, this was not formalized until the 16th century. So he didn't write it as X with a little two above it and then wonder what else would come on it. Okay, so again, having sort of muddied El Khwarizmi's legacy, we have to ask the question, okay, what did he actually do? Does he deserve the title of father of algebra? With Al Khwarizmi, he develops the idea of algebra as a system in and of itself, something that's worth knowing and that can be applied to a wide range of problems. Hard to believe, but that's not the way it was used before. In fact, his great book, the one that we get the word algebra from, is divided into two parts. The first is the rules for solving what we would refer to today as quadratic equations. The second part, though, was all the practical applications for these that were very much uh, involved with the Islamic empire, inheritance, taxes, trade, engineering, and so forth. But it was really the first part that was revolutionary. He gave a system of mathematical operations that you could apply to any problem. Now, it's hard for us to imagine, but his predecessors, even though they did solve uh, equations and solve problems, they would only solve a specific problem, like, let's say, how to divide a square into three parts of equal size. They would produce an elegant explanation, but that problem kind of stood by itself. So if you think about the kind of algebra homework that we do today, and this is probably bringing up some uh, bad memories for you, you learn a set of techniques. And then you get a whole bunch of hypothetical problems. What if a train is leaving Chicago at a certain time and another train leaves Denver at a different time? Or Jimmy has 12 apples and Mary has four and so on. Well, we clearly understand that the examples are just made up and they, they could be anything. You could switch the train with some other kind of problem. And the only purpose of those is for us to learn how to apply the rules. Well, if you kind of imagine it the other way around, you have an idea of what the ancients were doing, like what the, the Greeks were doing. 
they had the specific problems. It, it wasn't an imaginary train. It would have a very real situation. Uh, how do we divide up this, uh, let's say, this inheritance that we need to divide up? They would give specific solutions for those specific problems. They'd be very detailed, very elegant, very well proven, and that's what you'd learn. But it was only this was the solution for this particular problem, not a set of rules. What Al-Khwarizmi did was he elevated algebra to the status of its own discipline, kind of the way we learn it now. It's a set of skills worth knowing, and then you could apply it to inheritance, you could apply it to trade, to taxes, to whatever you want. And so notice the order of his book. Techniques first, by themselves, and then you get the applications. And this was really the opposite of the way it was done before. This seems strange to us, but I think we have to look at this as part of what's going on during this scientific revolution. Today, we are very familiar with the idea of universal scientific rules that can be applied to everything. But this was not really the way it was done, particularly in the, in the Middle Ages. What they did uh, was the idea of following the classical experts. So if you wanted to know how to divide a field, for example, you would go look and see, well, did Aristotle tell us how to do this? Well, how did he do it? The reference to an expert, i.e., Aristotle said this, Pythagoras said this, that was how you started, and that was what you needed. Where today, we assume the scientific rule is what matters. We say, okay, Isaac Newton came up with force equals mass times acceleration, but it's not based on his authority. It's based on this being a, a real natural law. So if the ancient didn't address a specific situation, then you didn't really have an answer. What's happening here, what Al-Khwarizmi is doing, and it's paralleling what we're seeing in all the sciences here, is he's giving you a set of rules. It doesn't depend on his authority. And the idea is you should be able to apply it to all sorts of hypothetical situations, even situations we have not yet envisioned. It's a real shifting to a modern scientific method, a modern view of science, that the rules themselves are something that can stand by themselves, and yeah, there are ways to use them. Okay, now some people, of course, hearing this, will object to this generalization. Certainly, they would say there were independent, innovative thinkers among the ancients, among the Babylonians, among, among the Greeks, and there were many great scholars who rejected the received wisdom of their predecessors. Of course, I mean, Aristotle disagreed with Plato famously, and certainly there are a lot of people today who just slavishly repeat whatever the experts say. Uh, this is the way we've always done it, and I don't know why. I think what's different here is the shift in the balance of power, that what someone like Al-Khwarizmi is doing becomes the accepted way. I mean, he's not building up on the authority of Al-Khwarizmi, the solution to this problem is such and such. He's not building up that kind of reputation. The idea that the rules and the principles and the facts of science stand by themselves, and it's the duty of everybody who comes after him to test them and prove them. Uh, you can remember in science class, you would have to prove or test, experiment on things that you were taught were rules. You'd be taught this is the formula for acceleration, but you had to do an experiment to prove it to yourself. You know, let's prove that Isaac Newton was right. So this emphasis on scientific method and proof 
is being spread throughout this huge empire. Now, of course, my generalization about medieval Europe is unfair. There were some European scholars who took up the work of Al-Khwarizmi and the Arabs and recognized the value of it. And they did, to an extent, build on it themselves. And there were some innovative thinkers in Europe at this time. But the difference here, I think, is that rather than having the support and the funding of the caliph who builds your laboratories and builds your observatories and spreads and publishes your work, they were often persecuted by the church. And of course, Galileo is the great example. We mentioned the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who was one of many examples, someone who was excommunicated for his love of Arab science. But a key point here is that even these scholars in Europe They're reading in Arabic. They're certainly learning from Arab scholars. In fact, the the Emperor Frederick was accused of being a little Arab, a closet Muslim, uh, because of his love of Arab scholarship. Okay, if we're making everything sound really wonderful in the Muslim world at this time, don't be mistaken. If what I described about reliance on traditions of the ancients sounds familiar to what we discussed in the episode on the Hadith, When we talked about the traditionalists of Islamic law, that was episode 9, by the way, it's not by accident. So on the one hand, we've talked about this official sponsorship for innovation, the idea of the caliphs spending money to, to develop laboratories, these centers of learning and experimentation and research. We've talked about the development of universal scientific rules and techniques that are not based on individual authority, but on observation and experimentation. Well, if that sounds like the exact opposite to what the traditionalists, the scholars of Hadith were doing in the religious realm, well, they noticed that as well. And there would be tension. Now, of course, they were working in two different spheres. One group is working in religion and religious law, primarily. The other group is working in science and technology. But that's a little bit too neat. As you can imagine, in real life, there is a whole lot of overlap in these two areas, particularly when we get to areas of philosophy, ethics, moral reasoning, social sciences, something like psychology. How do you deal with with questions of insanity and irrational behavior? Uh, How do you deal with uh, things like natural science talking about the nature of the universe? To a certain point, you have astronomy which is reporting on what you actually observe in the sky, but you keep going, you get to the nature of the universe, the cosmos itself. So, unlike the way it is today, where on a college campus today, you usually find philosophy is in one school, and hard sciences like chemistry and physics are in a completely different school, at this time, The experts in these, quote, hard sciences were also the leaders of philosophy. And this is going to bleed over and, in some cases, conflict with theology and religion. And so there is tension, and the tension is going to continue to grow. Okay, there is also the general concern about, you know, what we hear today. Our young people are being taught to think a certain way. Well, it wasn't unique to our age. So if in one discipline, let's say in the sciences, people are being taught to base decisions on experimentation, on common sense, on what you can prove, 
and then you go to Islamic law class, and you're being taught to follow the traditions of the Prophet and his companions from 200 years ago, it's just a basic conflict in the way you're thinking. And is is going to happen. Most students are going to prefer one way versus the other. And so there's going to be conflict, and it's going to continue to grow. Well, the tricky thing, if you're running this empire, if you are the caliph, you need both of these factions. As the world's superpower, you need science and innovation to tackle massive challenges. You have huge engineering issues. You have a massive economy to run. I mean, you need the latest military technology. But you also have to maintain order. And as a Sunni power, particularly one whose legitimacy is constantly being challenged by the Shia, you do that based on your legitimacy in preserving and following the Sunnah of the Prophet. And so you need both of these factions. And as time goes on, just like in our society, they become more and more specialized. They, people go into a niche. Well, this clash is going to continue to play a big role in the history to come. It's a common assumption in the West today that the traditionalists of Islam dominate and they get the final word over the scientists. But that's not the case throughout history and certainly during this Abbasid golden age, it would seem like the scientists and the rationalists had the upper hand. But that will fluctuate a lot from one caliph to another and we shall talk about that in the future. So we have no shortage of people out there today making generalizations about Islam and its relation to science, to logic, to modernization. They're usually very negative generalizations. But many of these commentators really know very little about the actual history of Islam. But I hope even this very short glimpse we've given you here, now if you've listened to the whole podcast, it may not have seemed so short, but this summarization of several hundred years of scientific innovation shows that such a generalization has no basis. For half a millennium, Islam not only tolerated science, but it was really the driving force behind it. But again, the story's not all rosy. There was a backlash beginning even at the height of the Golden Age. So really, rather than simplistic generalizations that say Islam is either positive or negative towards science, we need to understand the balance of power, that this delicate relationship that exists. That's going to become even more evident as we continue in the next episodes, and it continues to be evident right up until our present time. So, we hope to see you then when we continue this discussion. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Best wishes. Goodbye. Ma salama.